Welcome back to another episode of the Health Mastery Show. Today I have on with me Brandon Kempter. He is a phenomenal natural bodybuilder. He's a pro in many organizations. Uh, I had the pleasure of competing with Brandon uh, the last time that I stepped on stage back in November 2019 in New York. And he's one of the most shredded people that I've ever seen in my life. He's a f- not only a fantastic bodybuilder, but he's a fantastic coach as well. And he brings in his clients in absolute peak condition. So in this conversation here today, we chat about Brandon's uh, bodybuilding uh, career himself, but also how he works with his clients and how he would set up a uh, prep. So this is a great conversation for those who are interested in natural bodybuilding or who are looking to compete from uh, one of the best natural bodybuilders on the planet, in my opinion. So without further ado, let's get into this episode with Brandon Kempter. Hey, Brandon. Thanks for coming on, man. Thanks for coming in. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I never uh, pass up the, up the opportunity to talk shop on the topic of bodybuilding. Absolutely not. Great. And how have you been doing, man, over the last last while? Uh, I, I know it's been it's, it's been a long time since we spoke. Um, I think we met for, well, we met and uh, it's probably the first and last time that we met in person was uh, right before the pandemic. <laughs> Yes, that was uh, WMBF Worlds. And that was a fantastic show. It was such an awesome piece to have, like, the meeting of so many countries. I mean, that was a truly international show. There was people there from all over the world. It was awesome, yeah. Mm. Well, and, you, and you just absolutely smoked me. <laughs> it was the end of my uh, competitive season, and it was, like, probably my my worst showing. Um, a very, very long season. But, yeah, you, you looked amazing, man. Um, that, that was the end of your your competitive season that year as well, right? Yeah, essentially. I, uh, I did one more show after the WMBF Worlds and that was in Portland. Um, and it was a bit of a, basically when I booked my trip to the US, I just went and booked three weeks and I just wanted to hit three shows over three weekends. And I definitely knew I wanted to hit the IMBA Universe and the WMBF Worlds. And I just found another show the next weekend, which happened to be an OCV show in Portland. And I didn't know much about, you know, the the uh, the geography of the US. So I didn't know Portland was a bit of a, well, there's not much happening in Portland. So I did that show, but it was a rather disappointing show. You know, I wanted to really challenge myself and go up against the best. And that's why I went to the universe and to the, to the WNBF. So I had one more show, but pretty much the, the, the really the last show was the WNBF. That was the last big one. Yeah. So for those who don't um, know you, do you want to intro a little bit about yourself? Uh, I know we just kind of jumped into your competitive season, but maybe some people <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Brandon Kempter. Uh, I'm based in Australia and I have uh, a, a, a company called BK Conditioning and I specialize in preparing drug-free bodybuilders for the stage. Uh, in particular, um, uh, within physique sports, in particular, bodybuilding and physique uh, slash figure is kind of my uh my game mm. and you're you're a pro in some organizations right a pro body uh, yeah yeah alongside that yes um i am a imba pro and a icn pro nice i remember when i when i was talking to a friend a couple of years ago and i was talking about pro natural bodybuilding he was like how much do they get paid because you're like pro that's pretty, <laughs> pretty funny. so it's like you get a salary of like 100k a year um but Basically, yeah it's that's about it (laughs) yeah it's the same for a lot of sports i mean um 
Yeah. So uh, I guess the topic today we want, want to chat on a chat about is like, how do you set up a contest prep? I know that this is a topic that I've talked about before on the podcast. Can't remember the episode number, but it was a, a good while ago with Peter Fishing, I think it was. Um, but everybody's different. So I guess to start with the first question is how many weeks out would you um, like either with yourself or with the people that you work with, would you start a contest prep? I know a lot of people uh, we see within the kind of open or untested bodybuilding, pretty short preps and, mm. and pretty dramatic transformations within that time. But then in Amazing. long, yeah, in, in natural bodybuilding, it's, it's typically quite, quite longer, quite, or, yeah, quite a bit longer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Look, I definitely agree. There's, there's, there's quite a difference in the contest preparation duration and the result that we can create um, between obviously natural and enhanced. Uh, look, the specific duration of a contest preparation obviously comes down to the starting position for the athlete uh, and the conditioning requirement for the athlete. Obviously, once we get into, you know, men's physique, bodybuilding, the conditioning uh, requirements for the category are potentially infinite uh obviously if we're in lower categories like men's fitness and you know females bikini etc then you know they need to be somewhat lean but not too lean um so it's hard to put an absolute on that but if we were to put a generalized range on it i would say somewhere around the 25 week mark would be sort of a a, a general uh contest preparation duration for most individuals occasionally a little bit longer uh but in my from my perspective, once we get up to about 35 weeks, that really is the maximum uh, duration to show number one that an individual should require to get contest ready. If they require beyond the 35-week realm, I would say that they probably didn't nail their pre-preparatory phase overly well, uh, and perhaps they should you know, reconsider their, their, their season. Mm. So, yeah, I, I guess that that's a good point, but uh, then it's definitely easier for, for you and I. So, so for example, when I'm working with clients who are going to compete, I can, I, I usually in my head kind of guess, okay, they're probably going to be this weight on stage. So it helps with the, the rate of loss and yeah, exactly. Essentially how, how fast we need to push, et cetera. But for people who are not uh, on stage, and I remember when I first competed in 2013, I think it was, I thought mm-hmm. I was going to be like 190 pounds on stage um, and I think, I think I was like 205 pounds or something like that. And then I ended up being like way lighter than that. Like, I think it's 170 plus I probably could have been leaner, but, and yeah. that's what a lot of people don't realize. They're like, yeah, I've already got maybe 20 pounds to lose. And you're like, you actually got like 45. How do people, how do people kind of, or how do you guess that? I guess, or, or is there any tools that you give to people that aren't coached to, to kind of Yeah, guess? look, I think not. I think not being coached is really it just in general is a very challenging piece, particularly for first timers, because most first times, just as you mentioned, will completely underestimate the volume of uh, of total body mass slash fat mass that they must lose in order to reach top level conditioning. Um, from a coaching perspective, there are occasions where I lean on a uh, body composition assessment tool, like potentially uh, a DEXA scan at the start of a contest preparation, just to use that as a means of formulating the uh, contest preparation projections. Um, however, like there are occasions where I use that. However, these days for the majority uh, of individuals I work with, I will use a visual assessment and I'll use their body weight, sorry, body height as a reference. And from there, I'm usually able to uh, estimate stage weight plus and minus a couple, couple of kilos quite well these days. Um, so usually I'll use that 
yeah, I'll use an estimation nine times out of 10. Mm. And to be honest, it's probably one of the best things to, to do is just guessing. And it's just go, it just comes with, or at least what I think is it just comes with uh, experience because yeah. I don't know. I don't know how I, how I personally learned that. I, I guess just from following it and coaching and, and being coached myself for probably 10 years yeah. at this stage, it's just, but you need to kind of know that because otherwise you're just like, well, do I, how fast do I, do I lose for this person yeah. or how much do I need to go? So, you'd mentioned a little bit about the kind of prep uh, pre-contest preparatory phase what exactly does that entail well basically the the way i look at it when it comes to uh creating a good physique oriented athlete whether it's you know bodybuilding or, or an alternate category is that we is that it really should encompass four distinct phases uh you know obviously an off season so you know, gain muscle in, in ensure that we are a perfect picture of health, make sure our symmetry and proportions in check. And then from there, we have a pre-preparatory phase, then a contest preparation, then a recovery phase. Now the pre-preparatory phase in, uh, in my views is simply a time where we uh, do exactly that, pre-prepare the body for the contest preparation. And this is usually something that, might, that would occur several months before the commencement of the contest prep. Uh, it generally involves making sure that the starting body composition is appropriate. So if we need to run a dieting phase from the peak of the, the, the prior gaining phase to set that up, then we'll do that. And uh, for a lot of individuals, uh, it also involves some lifestyle modification, making sure that their environment is set up for uh, what is to come in the contest preparation. Cause as you know, contest prep is one of those all consuming endeavors and you need to make sure that everything is uh, you know, in your life is as systemized, uh, systematic and, and uh, uh, routine as possible. And that's part of what we do in the, the pre-preparatory phase. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think you made a good point there. Uh, it's like, it's quite consuming. And and that's even coming from from yourself or, or myself who are more experienced in this and can probably manage it better or, or it doesn't have as much of it or it didn't seem as consuming because we already love doing this stuff and are used to it. Whereas you're somebody who kind of thinking of, of a good physique or of good genetics, or I'm thinking of doing this for the first time, it can seem way more consuming for them because they ha- may not have the habits set up yeah. that like, like I remember I was doing a crazy amount of steps in my last prep, but yeah, yeah. take it back now. It's like, it's like more than double what I'm doing now, but it doesn't, didn't seem so consuming, but actually when I think about it, it's actually, it was really cons- time consuming. Like my whole life was just, I was basically like, cooking or or resting or training or doing some cardio so what what kind of habits are you looking at um like what sort of setups are, w- would you get someone ready for because obviously jumping two feet in straight into a contest prep probably isn't the best idea for a lot of people it seems like this esoteric thing or something that's like really cool like i want to look like that um but what what are people may not be ready for what do you get them set up in that phase well to start i think it's really interesting the what you uh mentioned before with regard to being more experienced and learning how to sort of sectionalize yourself um, in your day so that you can be a bodybuilder when you need to be and you can be you know student family man businessman whatever or woman for that matter external to that you do get better at that over time I think the more contest preparations you do Um, but in general you know we make sure that you know we've got the space in our life uh, to dedicate a sufficient amount of time to the craft. We make sure that we've got the time availability to get all of our training in and do so consistently. We make sure that our life is structured in a way 
that uh, you know we're able to tick the boxes when it comes to our nutrition and make sure that we've got some solid routine in the off season surrounding our nutrition so that when it comes to contest preparation, we're not taking a giant leap um, to be able to meet our nutrition with that level of consistency and adherence. Rather, we just need a tightening up of habits. And I think that the more advanced individuals become, the easier it is to transition to contest preparation. You know, a new, a new athlete, you know, may have only just learned how to weigh foods and, uh, you know, integrate that side of things, to, you know, into their life. Whereas an advanced individual, um, even if they have a period of intuitive eating in the off season, they know how to transition to, you know, weighing foods to the gram as is necessary in the contest prep. And obviously what we do in the contest prep, it's not something that's maintainable in the long term, but it was never supposed to be. It's mm. something we do to achieve the result uh, for the stage and then we exit that. But the pre-preparatory phase is about sort of, it, it, it's about setting up those systems so that, okay, contest prep's upon us, cool. We have the time to train. You know, we, we, we've, we've got the organization uh, within our day to hit our meals, et cetera, essentially. Mm. Yeah, yeah, really good points there. Um, and and also the, the point that it's it's not sustainable. I think, um, I, I, I don't know, like there's multiple reasons why people think oh, it yeah. might be sustainable. It's, it's you've got people who, uh, well, obviously in social media or, or news, like it's always the extremes, the, the extreme best and the extreme worst. So we see yeah. like the worst, craziest gun shootings and all this sort of stuff on social media. And, and then we see like, the the best physiques and the the most amazing feats of of uh of greatness um and then people think that's the normal uh and we see these great physiques like of, of people either they're they're in contest shape or they're or they're not natural and they're or they've just got ex- extremely amazing genetics or able to stay leaner and then people think that's the norm and then because i because i a lot of time i get people reaching out to me they want to they want to do a contest prep to get in shape but not no. actually compete so um, I don't know if you coach anybody or work with anybody that doesn't actually compete, but how do you change? If you do, do you follow any different kind of approach with those sort of people? To be totally honest at this time uh, and, and, and realistically of the last two years, I haven't worked with anyone that's not contest related in some way. Um, obviously I have a good portion of my coaching cohort of which are in the off season, but uh, obviously we're still, you know, preparing and improving on their physique for the next day showing. Um but just on just to revert back to uh, your your prime mentioned topic with regard to individuals that reach out and they tell you they want to do a contest preparation but not get on stage, uh, I I definitely have had individuals you know put that in their application and I always find it an interesting piece because you know as you can relate so much goes into so much focus and dedication goes into creating that top level physique. And personally, I don't know about you, but personally, there is absolutely no way on this, you know, on, on God's given earth that I could ever rationalize the sheer sacrifice and effort investment required to get into stage conditioning if there wasn't a stage there. You know, there's no way that I'm going to put myself through that for a photo shoot. Like, I love the photo shoots that I did when I was in comp shape, but I wouldn't do it just for that. And generally speaking, when someone reaches out to me and says, like, I want to do a contest prep and I'll, I'll just see you know, and not get on stage, or if I feel like it, I'll get on stage, I usually decline because, well, there is just no way that you could ration, that anyone I, I think could rationalize the effort investment required unless they, you know, are hundred percent all in for the stage. So mm. 
yeah yeah no i agree i've never done it myself um like i've never said i'll do a contest prep but not compete because if it was a compete but yeah it's even if you do start to to do that i think it's probably really difficult to actually give your best or to even get your best get your best outcome um like even for even now like uh, the shows that were in, in ireland were cancelled gyms are closed like it, it's so much more difficult to kind of motivate yourself when you don't even know there's going to be a show coming or, or anything like that so um yeah i agree and 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 i do think yeah i've heard people say something like that they'll just they'll do a contest prep for a photo shoot or something but they're they're like habits or their actions don't align with what's actually needed to to be in a contest prep and and it's understandable because we just you just said that it's it's not something that is really feasible or something that you can do and um, so yeah, it's, it's a very interesting point you can't give yourself an out <clears throat> you have to go all in and i think that goes for pretty much any any really big goal you have is you have to go all in you can't have doubt in your mind otherwise if that if that's an option then when things get challenging, you will opt for that option over persevering and pushing through, you know, discomfort. Um, and, you know, within contest prep, it's, it's like we're saying, it's not a made a sustainable piece, but that is okay. I mean, if you had a goal, let's say a financial goal, and you had to work a 50 hour work week, you would do that. Or you would be able to do that for 10 weeks or whatever to achieve said goal, but you couldn't do it forever. Same goes with contest preparation. You know, you can't do it forever, but that's okay. It's not supposed to be forever. It's only for the specific duration of the contest preparation. We're going to custom build this physique for the few minutes here on stage. Maybe we're going to do it over a few weekends. And then as soon as possible, we're going to retreat back to a healthy body composition and uh, get back to the business of building and, you know, pushing, uh, pushing into our off season yeah i think it's because uh if you had like a, a venn diagram people think and, and i get I, i'm not really sure why but because there is some crossover but like health and being in shape and then bodybuilding contest prep and they're like mutually inclusive <laughs> there's some there's some overlap of course you get fitter or you, you you get leaner you do get healthier and you look better but they're not the sort of things you do to to get in shape and stay you know beach lean or stay lean forever but that's the that's that's the way a lot of people approach it and uh, so true, yeah, yeah. I, I think i think that um like the when it comes to you know health in general it, it all comes down to you know of, of an appropriate dose extremes in any in in any in whichever direction are not a productive piece it's like being you know excessively fat is almost certainly going to come at the at a at a uh, you know, is going to come at a cost to your health. And, uh, you know, on the opposite end of the pendulum, being very, very lean is, is not an overly healthy environment to exist in. Somewhere in the middle, absolutely, that would represent a, an ideal condition. So, yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we're, we're getting a little bit off topic. Um, <laughs> so, so to come back to, uh, yeah, the contest prep. So what sort of rate of weight loss are you looking at? Is Do you divide that by... So say, let's say we're going to stick with 30 weeks. Do you just say 30 weeks? Okay. Uh, they've got 30 pounds to lose or whatever, 12 kilos. Um, so yeah. we do that. We split that then, then by 30, or do you focus on a higher, higher rate of loss at the beginning and then kind of taper it down and slow it down towards the end? That's a really great question. Basically what I would do is by 30 weeks, for example, 
The first thing I would do is take off peak week. That's a nothing week for me. We're not actually going to be focusing on losing through that final week. I would then uh, proceed to take an additional four to five weeks off. And that is basically the time I have up my sleeve for life, slow weeks, et cetera. And then with that remaining duration, I would put in place a rate of loss that declines uh, the deeper we go into condus preparation. And the logical rationale for, for that is because we can only liberate so much energy per unit of fat per unit of time. And uh, that essentially means that in the period of that condus prep where we have the most fat, the start, we can afford the largest deficit and run the least risk of uh, degradating lean tissue. And conversely, at the end of our condus preparation, particularly when we're going from lean to exceptionally lean, you know, our capacity to, to supply that deficit with energy exclusively from free fatty acids is somewhat compromised. So we need a slower rate of loss towards the end. So what I'll usually do is reverse engineer a condus preparation. I have their starting place in terms of total body mass, their estimated uh, stage weight. I will then work and reverse from there. I know I want my athletes, you know, a couple of kilos, two, three kilos off stage weight at 10 weeks out. Uh, and it's sort of, and from there, I'll continue to reverse engineer it. So that at the start, we're probably person dependent, you know, working at a, a one, maybe even a 1.5% per week, you know, uh, rate of loss. And obviously that declines throughout the contest preparation. And um, we obviously need to make sure our timeline, you know, factors this in. Mm. You made a really good point about the kind of factoring in time for, for life or whatever. Um, e- even across 30 weeks, it's like, that's more than half a year. Things happen, yeah. things come up. Um, yeah. And some weeks they just doesn't drop. Uh, it's a really good point. So what about then the deficit? Do you create that through diet or, or diet and cardio or diet in some form of activity? Yeah, well, look, it'd be a combination of both, but it really, it is person dependent and it's largely de- dependent on the individual's environmental factors. So for example, if you're a sedentary individual like me, I work on my computer, I sit down for realistically a minimum eight hours a day, more than likely longer. I'm probably going to be a good candidate for you know, adding formal forms of cardio because my non-exercise activity thermogenesis has me averaging around 3000 steps per day, which is quite dismal compared to sort of you know, what is considered uh, a sort of healthy-ish realm. So aside from what I'm doing within my training, my activity, you know, my, uh, my, my PAL, my physical activity level is quite low. So an individual in my scenario, probably a good candidate for adding cardio when it's necessary. Uh, conversely, for someone who has, you know, a rather active day, more than likely as part of their occupation, considering we spend approximately 35% of our life at our place of working, you know, those individuals, we probably don't have to, um, you know, leverage an increase in energy expenditure to supply the energy deficit. We can more than likely do that solely through, through nutrition. However, I will say this in general, uh, particularly at the start of that condus preparation, I would prefer to make the diet work harder for us rather than add additional cardio. Simply at the start, simply for the sake of being of less inconvenience for the individual slash athlete. And because we have the ability to do so at the start, you know, really for me, cardio is a means of supplementing the energy deficit that we're creating through our nutrition, because to supply it solely would be, we just wouldn't have enough time in the day. We'd be walking all day or, or, or doing whatever facet of cardio we're doing. So I look at it as a supplementary piece um, and, and it's sort of used on a case by case basis. 
would that be like step count or like on the treadmill or or, or sprints or or something like that these days i generally recommend steps obviously uh, a step counter is an imperfect tool but it is the best tool we have and if we're using it uh you know in a in a in, in the fashion of which most individuals do then it's going to be accurate enough to get us in a ballpark uh you know there are times where i have individuals that might that might work on a boat for example or ride a motorcycle to work and and those are occasions where okay the uh, imperfections of this tool are going to be highlighted and we might not be able to use it as effectively as we would others but in most scenarios it's going to be step output it's it's a a simplistic and convenient means of uh, getting into a ballpark with our daily energy expenditure. Mm. So a motorcycle increases your step count, does it? Yeah. So when I yeah. so I, so I ride a motorcycle sometimes. If I ride or if I go on a jet ski, you know, I'll get you know ten thousand steps just riding. So <laughs> it's like you yeah. got like seventy five thousand steps today. Good job. <laughs> yeah. Cost me very little energy expenditure. <laughs> yeah. Very very efficient. Um, on the actual the topic of energy efficiency there, um, I've, I've been thinking recently about like cardio and step count in a contest prep. And as you probably know, because you, you said you're doing a, a master's in, in exercise or sports nutrition, is yeah. in, in the kind of endurance sports and like very high level when people have or suffer from like the relative energy deficiency, there's, there seems to be potentially some sort of economic efficiency, whether it's through exercise or or utilization of of food or carbs and or not carbs of food being able to like extract more energy from the food or just being more uh, economically efficient with the with the biomechanics of, of the exercise it's not 100 clear but that could potentially be happening when you get like very lean and you're doing a ton of exercise so it's like there could be a point where it's like yeah you're doing more steps and or, or more activity and yeah of course you're lighter so you're going to burn 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 less calories and then there's also that, you know, increased fatigue is going to mean decrease kind of neat outside the steps. So you're just moving around a lot less as you probably felt. But then actually in the steps or the activity itself, maybe you're burning less than you otherwise would if you did less steps as well. It's just something I've been thinking about and thinking about like what, in the future. Just to dig into to that, pull that apart a bit further, I would 100% agree that obviously there is a variety of adaptation that occurs in the body pertaining to energy conservation in the dieting condition. Um, and in reference to, you know, um, you know, simplistic movement patterns like walking, we, we more than likely do become more efficient in general um, due to internal components, you know, less proton leakage, yada, yada, yada. But I can definitely say that I have experienced an alteration to my walking gait in, in, uh, within periods of low energy availability. So specifically contest preparation, whereby in my walking gait, I lift my feet less. So with less height in the swing phase, which makes me essentially appear more clumsy because I have this tendency to trip over things. And I think most individuals can relate to that. You know, they're walking around in contest prep and obviously the cost of locomotion is, well, is, is less as a product of moving less total body mass. That's one thing, but also, you know, you're, you're walking with, with a pretty weird walking gait. And like you said, also the, the compensatory behaviors in, in other areas of your day. You know, I remember when I caught up in person, when I used to work with, with, with athletes in, in, in person, I caught up with, a, with one of my athletes at 10 weeks out. And when he was talking to me, he was leaning on my desk, standing there, like 
really leaning there. And, you know, that's a great example of like, okay, that, you know, this is, this is, um, you know, subliminal energy conservation in action here. Like he wouldn't, I said, do you realize you're leaning on this desk? He's like, oh, not really, but you know, things like that, that's going to save you a few, few kilocalories here, a few calories there, et cetera. And obviously that has a cumulative effect across your day. And I could also relate to, uh, you know, my daily chores as part of my house, you know, running the household will be like mow the lawn every couple of weeks, et cetera. In contest prep, I'm going to look at that lawn and be like, nah, that can wait for another, you know, three weeks. So those are all like compensatory behaviors uh, that uh, come into play as a product of energy conservation. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think I do that in the off season as well. See, my girlfriend's not too happy about that. So. <laughs> but uh, for, for me, I don't know if it's about energy conservation more so just being lazy. Um, but yeah, so it's interesting because like in other kind of sports if you will um we're, we're trying to kind of avoid these adaptations as much as you can but in bodybuilding you kind of have to it's just as part of part and parcel of getting super lean it's like with the guys leaning on the desk you weren't probably saying oh oh shit we got to increase your carbs so you have more energy it's just like no it's just part of the suck like almost to get to get into contest shape i think that 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 is it's it's an interesting sport and realistically there's no other sport like it where an individual must present at such a low body composition and you know we are definitely not a performance-based athlete and when it comes to nutrition and exercise science the majority of it is based around optimizing performance for us optimizing performance is important from the perspective of leveraging adaptation in the off season and maintaining it in contest preparation but you know, we're not a performance-based athlete in that we're not getting judged on a feat of performance. And, you know, when it comes to the adaptation we accumulate as part of the dieting condition, I think the goal is always to try and attenuate it as much as possible. But it's really important to note that you are dealing with a very complex series of biological systems and, uh, the human body is wonderfully intelligent. So you're always going to pay your dues to the dieting condition, no matter how intelligent you think you are with managing your variables. Like there will come a time where you're going to have to embrace the suck. You can't, mm. you, you can't circumvent that. Mm. Um, yeah. One, one thing I was, uh, I was going to ask you was when dieting down, like people tend to get flat and they only say flat or full, like we're often talking about how they look in terms of, I suppose their muscle size, it's a glycogen storage. Do you yeah. use that as a kind of proxy to make decisions? Obviously there's going to be points where you, you're going to be flat because you're not ideally. Yeah. Of course we'd love to just use our body fat as energy stores and keep our, our muscle glycogen as full as possible. So training is, is great and we look great, but, but how do you, how do you uh, use that or do you use that at all for a tool? I know some coaches will say, uh, oh, you're flat, so we need to kind of increase food. Probably see a little bit more in the kind of enhanced side because well, they're full a lot because of the androgens and stuff. Um, but yeah. do you use that a lot? Yes. I mean, the way I look at it is like this. Um, I think a good coach... So I think coaching is, is... Good coaching is the amalgamation of science and art. So the science is a simple part. It's just knowing what variables to change and what influence it should have on the body. The, the art is being able to read objective and subjective, um, you know, markers of progression and or regression and to be able to make good judgments based on what you're seeing 
and to know which combination of and to what magnitudes of variables you're going to change. And this is the hard thing about bodybuilding. When you're looking at like mentorships in, in, in bodybuilding is that, or, or, or putting in place guidelines, you can't put anything in, that, in, in an absolute. And that goes for most things, but definitely in the, you know, the interesting sport that is bodybuilding. So in regards to like fullness and flatness, like the, the, the first thing I'll say is that when people say I'm full flat, full or flat or tight or soft, there's obviously no fixed definition. And this is where things get a bit ambiguous. But, you know, in general, I would say have the same definition. If we're full, we're talking about muscle glycogen saturation and vice versa for flat, you know, we have low muscle glycogen saturation. And just like you said, you got to get flat to get lean. You got to, you know, fill out. And as I say, you, you get flat to get lean, fill out to look lean. Um, that's saying often have. And obviously for every pro, there's always a con for basically everything in, in life. And the human body is no exception. Like we know we have to deplete muscle liver glycogen stores uh, in order to persuade your biology to, to, you know, basically persuade your body to liberate free fatty acids from adipose tissue. There's no way around that. But we also know that when muscle glycogen saturation is low, it poses a threat to performance through decreases in central drive and, of course, fueling. We also know that when muscle glycogen saturation is low and volume, muscle volume is low, uh, it's theorized that, that by default, uh, there is a higher proclivity for muscle protein degradation. Conversely, when muscle glycogen saturation is high, it's the opposite. Performance is great, et cetera. But the trade-off is we're either not going to lose fat if we're in a eucaloric environment or we're going to put on fat if we're in a... Um, in a in a large surplus or and or put on muscle depending on how we're managing our variables so i think you know contest preparation is a game of give a little and take a little like we're gonna have to embrace the flatness sometimes but sometimes we also need to fill up and and give back to the system you can't just take 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 you're going to break this you're going to break down and like i said having good judgment is an important piece and i will take in into consideration all variables so how's the individual's performance um, what's their body weight measures doing? Do we have an alternate uh, means of assessing? Um, do we have a means of assessing composition or estimating body composition? We use that. How are they just feeling in general in terms of perceived energy? How are they looking? Full, flat, tight, soft? Are they starting to string out as a product of being too flat? And then obviously adjust their variables based on that. So I'll take it all into consideration. And like I said, I think that's the, that's, that's the art of coaching. It's, the, mm. it's, it's quite fun like that. Yeah, I would love to see some sort of research on like levels of flatness and kind of uh, fat body fat kind of oxidation or, or rates yeah. versus muscle or protein oxidation rates. That would be that would yes. be great. So we know the perfect amount. It's probably never going to happen, but it'd uh, be amazing. Uh, we just need a whole lot of funding, um, some willing participants who want to get multiple muscle biopsies. Uh, uh, and a researcher is willing to dedicate their time for really uh, a really small subgroup of individuals like us who want to get really shredded uh, <laughs> and maintain yeah. high amounts of muscle. <laughs> I, I was actually listening to something uh, about the uh, initial original kind of liver glycogen measurements where they were taking like multiple liver biopsies from, oh, from athletes. I don't know how you would even get a liver biopsy. Is something go up your ass or something? And I don't know, but it uh, doesn't sound too too pleasurable um seeing what like a, a muscle biopsy looks like um so yeah it sounds kind of like you use the same variables that you would kind of think about refeeds or diet breaks do you add those in at all yeah look i, I do I, I definitely add refeeds um diet breaks occasionally it's sort of like a, as as necessary piece uh and when it comes to my approach although i have a generalized system in the way i plan contest preparations 
I really do feel out contest preps with each individual athlete, just because there's so much heterogeneity in one's responses. I mean, that is essentially that, I mean, the laws of biochemical individuality state that each individual will respond differently to a set dose of whatever stimulus or a drug or nutrition intervention. So I really feel it out. Mm-hmm. So do, do you, do, is it different for each one? Do you, would you do like a one day, two day, three day? Yeah. Do you have, you don't have any kind of specific way you do it? Or what are you trying to look for in that? Is it, is it more a psychological thing? Is it for physiological? Are you looking for weight drops or do you use them when, when, uh, when weight stalls or, or is it all of the above? Yeah. So when it comes to refeeds, I, I will say this, I will say the majority of the individuals I will work with will, uh, their, their, their contest preparation protocol will uh, have a refeed protocol of sorts. Um, you know, my logical rationale for that is less a matter of slowing down metabolic adaptation because I think it's quite challenging to, to cheat the system. You're going to accumulate adaptation. I mean, maybe if we could slow it down a little bit, that'd be great. However, the current research doesn't indicate that we can really do that. But uh, I will refeed um, more than anything for, uh, for, for psychological benefit and um, also to, to, to leverage some performance from it. Um, and from the perspective of, of, of psychological benefit, I think that, you know, for in, particularly for individuals who have done a contest prep before, you, learn, you, know, you, you understand that it's not short, sharp and aggressive. It's long and progressive. It's, it's an arduous process and it, uh, it wears at you. And that's really where the utility of refeeds and diet breaks come into play. Generally speaking, I would refeed uh, as a start once per, per seven-day period, uh, so once a week. Uh, and then quite possibly as we get a little bit closer to the show, um, it, it might become beneficial for us to refeed with a two-time-per-week training frequency, individual dependent, in order to top up muscle glycogen saturation to the point where we can get a bit more fullness to the physique and leverage the performance we want from its inclusion. Uh, and when it comes to diet breaks, obviously like a diet break, I mean, there's no real strict definition, but by definition, it's obviously a series of refeeds that span anywhere from sort of seven to 14 days. I'd be very unlikely to run a seven to 14 day duration of energy maintenance. I feel as though that's quite excessive and elongates the process or perhaps a little bit more than it needs to be. But I am, I quite often run, I suppose you could call it a, a small diet break anywhere from sort of three to maybe four or five days. Uh, and when I'd usually run that it would be dependent on a variety of things. One would be if we have the room in our timeline and two would be if the individual requires it. I'm getting to a point where the individual is reaching their breaking point uh, in the contest prep and we have the time up our sleeve. Then I would say, okay, you know, this might merit uh, having a few days of energy maintenance to sort of re allow the individual to recollect, like regroup before we run the next push phase. Mm. Yeah, I think people really underestimate the psychological benefits not that you can necessarily separate physiological and psychological because uh, they're all one kind of one being or whatever uh but yeah it's i don't know there's like in the in the the research stuff there's it's like questionable now there's there's a little bit showing the benefits there's been back and forth but when you're working with clients that are doing a contest prep and they are just you can just tell that they're just like dragging their feet you know metaphorically speaking it's it's crazy how much a refeed is like Christmas for for me Leo like a, a refeed is just like yeah it's it's just nothing there's no it's not something I look forward to or it's not something I do but it's crazy when you're in a in a prep you it's like okay I can get through these six days and can really like drag or you can really gonna push through 
because I know there's like light at the end of the tunnel, like on, on Saturday, I'm going to refeed and then get back into it when you're like, oh, with 15 more weeks of this and I don't get to eat more food. It's just like, yeah, it's just impossible almost to deal with that mentally. Definitely. And I think that, I mean, people got to realize that, I mean, when you're sitting, sitting, uh, you know, nice and soft and cuddly and, and on a high energy intake in your off season, it's very easy to sit, you know, sit down and say like, ah, oh, it can't be that hard. But obviously if, if in the dieting condition, like you said, it, it's, it's, uh, it's a different story. I mean, food and shelter are pretty high on Maslow's hierarchy of needs and you really experience, uh, you know, that, that internal need for uh, energy sufficiency when you're in the dieting condition. It's, it's profound. Um, you know, it, it, it really is. Have you so, ever done any, any, any to ever like eaten any crazy things like, or done any weird habits like when you're very lean? I think we all develop some interesting habits in contest preparation as a product of just having such heightened food reward sensitivity, you know, some weird food combinations. People finish their contest prep, think they're going to be like this amazing chef that lasts about three weeks and then they're fat and happy and all is good again. Yeah. But, you know, like I remember, you know, I was dipping like sweet potato in yogurt and I was, you know, talking to my friends, like, this is the most amazing thing you guys should all try it. I'm going to be doing this in the off season. Yeah. Right. It's a really weird thing to do, but you know, at the time, my, my, my sense of sense, sense of smell and taste, and just overall food reward sensitivity was so high that, you know, sweet potato tasted like the most sweetest thing on earth to me. So mm. yeah, I, I definitely developed some, some interesting uh, habits that I would say in the majority of cases served me in a beneficial manner in the context of, of the duration of the contest prep. Yeah. Yeah. I spoke to, I don't know if you know, Marty Kendall, he's a fellow Australian. Um, he, he's, he has a company called optimizing nutrition, but um yeah, I spoke to him when I was doing my contest prep first, and I was, I was thinking, I was t- talking about like, oh, taste sensitivity. Like, w- will, like, will the pleasure that I get from eating like these high calorie dense sweetened foods change as I get like fatter, essentially? And it did, you know. Like, I don't know if it's just exposure or body fatness. I think it's probably a combination of the both. And like, when you're when you're super lean, you just like really crave these high calorie dense foods. I think some work by Stefan Guine has looked at that. Uh, but then yeah. when you're, when you're, when you fire body fat, it's just like, yeah, you know, take it or leave it. Um, but interesting when, when I was doing contest prep, I used to bite the fish oil capsules. <laughs> oh, I, I do that too. I would never do that in the off season. That is really out of sorts, but in contest prep, I, I, it's another flavor for the day, man. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, I'm not going to waste this like nine calories and be just swallowing it. I'm going to eat it. Uh, it's very, very strange. Cause like, it's, uh, ah, it's very odd. I used to also put the like Splenda or similar on the green beans and then like bake them in the oven. Uh, I saw oh, like no. a guy. Yeah. I saw someone and I eat that like as like a, a dessert, which is really weird. Cause they don't even really like eating green beans like normally. Uh, but yeah, so there's some strange, strange stuff. Um, yeah. So I, I guess I kind of assumed this, we probably should have talked about this at the top of the conversation, but the, the approach that you follow with, uh, is, is it a, kind of a higher carb approach do you ever follow sort of a ketogenic or a very low carb carbohydrate approach or is, is that something individual um oh look obviously the macronutrient distribution is is very individual but if we were going to talk in a sort of broad statement i would generally favor uh, uh you know protein sufficiency um sufficient fat but probably on the, the side of lower fat uh and obviously higher carbohydrate within the limitations of the the caloric allotment we have set aside for the individual and my logical rationale for that is that uh, 
is that obviously we're trying to leverage our best performance uh, in the suboptimal environment that is the dieting condition. So if the caloric intake can't, you know, isn't sufficient for performance optimization, then we better be damn sure the nutrition in terms of macronutrients is. And given that, you know, resistance training is a predominantly, not solely, but predominantly glycolytic, uh, you know, endeavor, we want to make sure that we've got, um, you know, as much carbohydrate as we can. So that's the, the general sort of uh, talking in a blanket statement approach that I, I, I have with regards to nutrition. I think a ketogenic diet per se, like a typical, like a, a proper ketogenic split, you know, low protein, high fat, very low um, fiber, uh, sorry, very, very low carbohydrate and by default low fiber, you know, has its place in, 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 a, you know, in, in, a, in terms of um, therapeutic benefit for, for in some clinical situations. Um, but in the context of a bodybuilder, I think it's a fantastic way to lose a lot of muscle mass. Uh, one, through insufficient protein, and two, is just through uh, you know, dismal performance that will, that will follow from, uh, from that dietary intervention. Mm, yeah, I, I agree. I think, well, one, probably a lot of people who try to follow it probably aren't in ketosis. I, don't, I actually don't know anybody who's, who's done a ketogenic diet for more than like two weeks. Um, and then <laughs> when you're, as you get leaner, everything compounds. So like yeah. if you're not actually in ketosis, but it's just a, a low carb diet, the hunger is probably going to be insane. The food volume is probably going to be very low. It just doesn't seem to make sense. Um, not to mention uh, micro, the potential for micronutrient deficiency. I mean, when you're looking at 5% of your total caloric intake come from carbohydrate, I mean, how, how much, uh, you know, what, what's your vitamin and mineral profile going to look like? I mean, we accumulate a good portion of our micronutrient intake from um, our, our vegetables. So, mm. And fruit for that matter. So I, I would argue that over time, unless you're really intelligent with uh, what limited carbohydrate you have and you're really intelligent with your supplementation, it's quite likely you're going to end up with, with, some, uh, with a micronutrient deficiency of some sort. And once you have deficiency at that sort of uh, level, then your performance is going to be further compromised. A healthy body does not perform well. Mm -hmm. uh, sorry, an unhealthy body rather does not perform well. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's good points. So I, th I think that's probably about it, Brandon. Um, we've, we're almost at time. So thanks for coming on. Where can people find more about, about you and the work that you do? Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. You can uh, find me on Instagram. I'm uh, not as active as I should be, but you can find me there at uh, Brandon Kempter is my Instagram handle. Or if you search BK Conditioning, I'm sure I'll come up on there. Alternatively, you can find me on Facebook. I don't have a business page on there, but I am on there with my personal account. If you flick me a message, I'm always happy to say good day. Awesome. And when will you be back on stage? Whoa. When can you leave what, Australia? <laughs> well, yeah, pretty much. I'll tell you what, we do have a good circuit here in Australia, uh, but obviously I would love to go overseas. So when we can do that and uh, when I finish my recent bout of study, which I'm always doing something, that's, you know, but when I finish this next bout, then I'll be on stage. I'm hoping things and toast cross 2023, which will be my longest off season, but um, I'm sure I'll be able to bring something special to the stage at that time. Awesome, man. I'd love to see you on stage again. Uh, you bring Likewise. that, that condition. Yeah. You're WMBF Worlds. <laughs> yeah. All right. That's, thanks a lot, man. Thank you.